Let me do a couple of things. Um, uh, first, uh, I want to introduce you to a couple that has just gone to work back in the cross-check ministry, the, uh, the athletic ministry of Gracie Van. Um, you might remember Taylor Dix. Taylor Dix has left Gracie Van to go to Bulgaria. Uh, he hadn't left just yet. In fact, his uh, grandfather just died about half an hour ago. But um, uh, he has been, he will be going to Bulgaria uh, since that God had led him to the mission field. So um, uh, that job became open when Taylor decided he was going to Bulgaria. And uh, the Lord has led us a couple that is here tonight. Uh, Jay and Savannah, Savannah Williams are seated uh, somewhere right over there. Yes. Yeah, so stand up, you two. <clears throat> yeah, now. She is great with child, uh, as I understand it. Aren't you, uh, October, is it? August, August, okay. So um, uh, his first day was Monday, so you'll see him if you're involved with the athletic ministry of Grace Van. Now, one other thing, um, uh, guys, you may not know this, but there's a couple of couples, um, the Alboards, the Oats, and I'm sure there are others, but uh, they 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 uh, serve you every Wednesday night uh, back with little ones, and they take off for the summer, which is a, a swell thing. That um, I think it's such a needed thing. Anyway, there is a need for uh, teachers in twos and threes and pre-K and girls in grades one through three. If you can fill those spots in the summertime, you need to contact Randy or Veronica Lord. All right. Now, um, gang, we're, we're in the Galatians chapter 5, and uh, uh, hopefully I have four more Wednesday nights with you, including tonight, so we'll, we'll try to make our way through the end of this chapter uh, before then. Um, but what we, we're, we, we talked about, verses 16, 17, and 18 last week, um, and, and, and we talked about this battle um, that only Christians uh, have. Uh, the reason that it's a distinctly Christian battle is because uh, we are people of two natures. Uh, we have that, that one that we were born with, the natural man, but this, um, this new man that has been created in us uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, there's this struggle that goes on, this, uh, this war between flesh and spirit. Do you remember? Um, the old man versus new man uh, that is uh, discussed in Ephesians 4. Um, and I know you. I know you probably don't um, agree with me, um, but I said something really important last week, and um, and and, and it's so important. I'm going to say it again. Um, it's an observation that comes out of verses 16 and 18. Um, it, 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 take a look at it, um, and you'll notice what it. What is it that is in opposition to the spirit in verse 16? It is flesh that opposes the Spirit in verse 16. But then when you go to verse 18, the thing that's in opposition to to, to Spirit there is law. So, my observation was, I'm not sure I made this very clear, but if if you take that out... The, the, this, this thing called flesh, it, this is just another way of saying flesh. Law. Guys, uh, this sinful nature thing in this battle that we're experiencing 
um, this, this thing that's still alive and that takes us captive from time to time that, as Paul says in Romans 7, it continues to generate ideas or, um, or ways that we can try to meet our needs with we, we want to try to design ways to, that our needs can be met without God. Um, that's, you can call it flesh, you can call it law. But this thing is continuing to generate ideas or ways that perhaps I can meet my own needs without having to rely upon or look to or, or depend upon God. Um, we look to success. We look to... Um, uh, human approval um, because those are things that perhaps will meet my needs and I'll never have to turn and consult with God uh, concerning them. Um, and, and, though, and consequently, guys, the, the result is there is this drive, this desire, this lust to get the thing that I think will ultimately meet my need without having to rely upon God, and that's called either flesh or law. Whatever you want to call it, ladies and gentlemen, it's the same thing. And it's opposed to a life in the Spirit. Gang, if idolatry is the Old Testament word for this drift away from God, then this, this word that I showed you last week, then epithumia, the lust, desire, is the... Is the is the New Testament word for that same drift. Um, it's the same thing, guys, that, that, that attempt on our part to try and meet our own needs apart from God. It's law, folks. It is flesh. Call it what you will, but it is. That's, that's the thing that is in this battle. My continued... Uh, uh, strategy of trying to meet my needs without having to depend on God. Now, that's what I said last week that I thought was really important. And um, I'm going to leave that up there because I'm going to refer to it later on. But at this point, guys, what I want to do is that I want to skip to verse 24. 24 and 25, and Lord willing, we'll look at 24 tonight and 25 next week. In between 18 and 24 is a list of the deeds of flesh and the deeds of the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit. We'll come back to that. I, I, I just hesitate to spend a whole lot of time defining for you what uh, envy is. I mean, I, you know, I'll give you the Greek word and all that business, but it's really not going to change anything. The, the real point is the, is the admonition that we get in verses 24 and 25. And so I want to make sure that we have time to cover those two. And then we'll go back to verses 19 and 20, 21, 22, and, and we'll, we'll, look at the, we'll look at those two things later on. But the, the real issue is, okay, if, if this is the battle, um, if, if this is the battle, then, then what do we need to do? What do we need to do to control this and walk by this? Well, verse 24 tells you. Let me read verse 24 and we'll look at 25. We'll save 25 for next week. And those who belong to Christ 
those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, how, how is it that we, that we overwhelm this and walk like this? We crucify the flesh. Now, what does that mean? And that's what I, I want to talk to you about tonight. We crucify the flesh. How do you do that? Did you see the, see the movie, The Da Vinci Code? Did y'all see that years ago? Remember when that was really hot? Remember that, that real blonde-headed guy who took a, a chain and he would go to his room and he would beat himself in the back with his chain? Remember that? Remember that scene? Well, uh, is that it? Is that crucifying the flesh? It's, it's certainly self-flagellation. Um, or um, crucifying the flesh means giving up something for Lent. Or um, uh, crucifying the flesh is just a series of just-say-no campaigns. Gang, um, none of that is, none of that works. Because the issue in this walk, this spiritual walk of ours, the issue is the heart. Um... uh, that is, in our hearts, we're afraid to trust, to trust God to meet our needs. And so we, um, we try to find ways to, to create our own value, to create our own worth. Um, or even worse, we, we try to find ways to save ourselves. Um, and the, the whole idea of just say no does not address... It does not address the heart. Um, uh, to, to think that I am going to walk by the Spirit by just saying no uh, does not address the heart. It does not address the motive behind the actions, which we're going to try to explain tonight. Um, but what it does is just place you in another form of bondage, another form of law. The just say no. Um, all of that is so such a fool's errand. So what we want to look at tonight is the motives behind the behavior. We want to look at your behavior. No, we want to look at your, your, uh, your, your lifestyle at the motivational level, not at the behavioral level. Because the issue is the heart. Um, just to try and correct your behaviors, which is, by the way, where most counseling stops, is with changing behaviors. Um, looking at only behaviors without looking at the motivation behind them is just a waste of your time. Now, but before we get to that, I need to tell you just a few grammatical things about this crucify the flesh thing, okay? This is just a little bit of, um, oh, I don't know, um, uh, textual understanding that you need to have before you, before you go any further. L- look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Now, the, here's the first thing you need to notice, guys. Um, this is something that is not done to us. It is done by us. Now, keep your finger there and go over to chapter 2. <clears throat> Look at chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. You see that? 
Over here it says, um, I would, uh, those who belong have crucified the flesh. Over here in chapter 2 is something that is done to us. Do you notice that's a passive verb? Um, I have been crucified with Christ. When it comes to our justification, there is a, there is a crucifixion that takes place that is done to us. But over here, this is a different matter altogether. This is something that is done by us. The Greek word that is translated uh, crucified, I mean, I can put it up there, um, but just know this. It is an aorist indicative verb. It is in the active voice. That is, it's not a passive verb. It's an active verb, uh, uh, an active voice. The point is, over in 220, that's something done to you. In 524, it is something done by you. Now, gang, I know that many of you don't give two hoots and a holler about the theological debate that's going on about sanctification. And whether it is monergistic or synergistic. You know, I'm not going to try to take any more of your time. But I hope this will put to rest forever the question of whether sanctification is monergistic or synergistic. It's synergistic, ladies and gentlemen. You have crucified... Not something done to you, something done by you. There is a a participation in sanctification that is not there in justification. Okay? That's the first little grammatical thing that you need to know. Okay, so when it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, um, what does that mean? Well, do you know the text, um, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself daily. And the first thing that crucifying the flesh means has to do with self-denial. That's what you find in Luke 9.23. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So one of the things that we're talking about in a life that is um, walked by the Spirit is, is a... Is a it, it, has a dimension to it of self-denial. But ladies and gentlemen, you need to notice that our flesh is so evil that only the worst kind of death is demanded. Crucifixion. This process that that every Christian is engaged in, it is painful, death comes gradually, But it comes certainly. Once you nail somebody to a cross, they never come down from there. Nor do they die immediately. It's gradual. But once you're on there, you're ultimately, that flesh is ultimately going to die. Now, gang, let me mention this and then we'll try to get to the the motivational behavior, motivation behind our behaviors. Guys, the first great principle of holy living is the, um, 
is the decisiveness of our repentance. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very important principle. The, the, the first great principle of sanctified living is the decisiveness of our repentance. Now guys, stay with me. This is, this is somewhat technical, but you've got to get it. Peter is preaching at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. The crowds are listening and they're, they're entranced by what he's having to say. The Holy Spirit falls in this massive way and they, they interrupt him in the midst of his sermon because they are so touched, they're so moved, they're so convicted. That's never happened to me in one of my sermons, by the way. But in, in the midst of it, they're, they're so moved by what he's saying. They, they interrupt his sermon and they say, what must we do to be saved? You remember his reply. Repent. There is a repentance that is associated with my justification. <clears throat> it is the thing by which, through which I enter the kingdom. Repentance. From that moment on, there is another repentance. This one takes place once and for all, but there's another repentance that takes place ongoingly. Goingly. <clears throat> Guys, you've heard about this again and again and again, but here they are. If you ever wanted to read all 95 of them, here they are. Martin Luther's 95 Theses. These things nailed to the church door at Wittenberg on October the 31st of 1517 and launched the Protestant Reformation. Here they are, all 95 of them. 95 Theses. You are the 95 Theses, you know, launched the Protestant Reformation. Here they are, here they are, right here. And here's number one. When Luther got ready to challenge the Roman Catholic Church, the first thing that was in his mind was this thing right here. Theses, number one. <clears throat> when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. There is a repentance that occurs when I come to Christ. And then there's a repentance that happens day after day after day after day after day. Because now that I belong to this Savior, I am more aware of my sin than I have ever been before. And I repent yesterday and I repent tomorrow. And I repent today. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the first principle of holy living has to do with the decisiveness of your repentance. How much of your sin did you see when you became a Christian? Huh? Were you aware of the ravages of the fall that affected you? And how gripped are you now with the same concerns of how often I lose this battle up here. Guys, I'm saying to you, if we understood this little principle right here that Luther understood, if we understood what Luther understood, 
there would be a whole lot more humility among us. And a whole lot more humility in us individually. But in a group, there would be a whole lot more humility. There would be a whole lot more honesty. There would be a whole lot less pretense that I am somebody that I'm not. Having to do with the decisiveness and the depth of your repentance. Knowing that this battle didn't stop when I became a Christian. No, no, no. This flesh kid continues to come up with strategies and ways and ideas and, 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 and methods by which I can avoid relying upon God. This is the flesh, ladies and gentlemen. This is, it's, it's a flesh that continues to love to perform in such a way that I can take credit for what I've accomplished. And so, not much humility and a whole lot of pretense among the Christian church. And I, I would trace it back to the depth and decisiveness of one's repentance. Luther understood something, ladies and gentlemen. Let me ask you, do you get that? Do you get that repentance is to be a way of life for the believer? I take up my cross daily because I found new sin daily. And very frankly, the longer, I'm in a, the longer I am a Christian, the more sin I see. All right, th th those are just some grammatical parts of the text. Let's go back and let me act like I'm a, a good Christian counselor, which I'm not. But guys, um... What does it mean to crucify the flesh? Here's what it means. That you enter into a lifelong process of identifying and dismantling the idols that you serve. <clears throat> um... To crucify the flesh is a lifelong process of seeing and destroying the attracting power that idols have over me at a motivational level, not at a behavioral level. I'm not talking about the behavioral level, ladies and gentlemen. Very frankly, that's another just say no campaign. And, and, and once you get caught up in those, it's just more legalism. Um, it is at the motivational level, the heart, where real change occurs. And so, the life of holiness is a lifelong process of identifying and dismantling all of those strategies, all of those ideas all of those methods that allow me to meet my needs apart from God. I don't need him. And I really don't even want him. I want to do this myself. Um, ladies and gentlemen, apart from the Holy Spirit to address the heart, 
you are wasting your time. For you to wear a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? Is a waste of your money. The issue is not your behavior. The issue is your heart. Excuse me. The issue is our heart. And it continues to manufacture. I think I told you this before that that Calvin said that the heart is a veritable manufacturing plant of idols. Is that not great? A veritable manufacturing plant. That's what I got inside me. And it continues to come up with ideas as to how I can avoid trusting in God and asking for more grace and just do it by myself. You know, give up something for Lent. Crucify my flesh. How's that working for you? Um, Guys, we got to ask... Not only what is it that I do that is bad, but why do I do it? That's what I mean by behavior level and motivation level. Uh, very frankly, we could all know, <laughs> we could all do pretty well with figuring out what everybody else does wrong. But that ain't the issue. The issue is why I do it. Why I do that. Are you ready for an answer, ladies and gentlemen? You're not going to like it. But let me tell you why we do it. We sin because we believe there is something that we need that God won't give us. And so, I got to come up with a strategy to get it for myself. We ultimately believe that God is not good. Which is the very thing that the devil wanted Adam and Eve to believe in Genesis 3. If God were good, would he withhold that from you? I mean, you know The reason he doesn't want you to eat that is because he knows that if you get to eat it, you'll be like him and he doesn't want anybody occupying his position. So he ain't good. So flash forward 12,000 years and we sin because we believe that lie of Genesis 3. I need something to make my life enjoyable and meaningful and purposeful and God won't give it to me. I have an unmet need that if I don't get it, my life won't be worth living. My life won't be happy. I've got an inner vacuum And so, I have to do this that I'm doing or I will have no value, worth, or identity. 
And thus I come up with another strategy as to how to fill up that inner vacuum that God is not good enough to meet himself. And so since I know that he won't do it, I'm going to have to take this matter into my own hands. And I'll find a way to do it completely apart from him. You can call that flesh. You can call that law, ladies and gentlemen. But that's the battle that we're in. Um, I got to have it. So I must do it. Or I won't get it. I won't have it. You know, years ago when... Um, I did a series that was really loosely based on this book. This has been around 30 years. But the, but the title of the book is, I mean, the, the, the cost of the book is worth the, I mean, the title of the book is worth the cost. The Lies That We Believe. And here's one of the lies that we believe. I have an unmet need and God won't meet it. God's not going to meet it. He's not good. So, I'm going to have to take this matter into my own hands. And I'm going to have to figure out a way to do this apart from him. So it's going to be my behavior, my performance, my accomplishments that's ultimately going to make me whole and fill up that inner vacuum. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know how to eat up with that we are, then you need to think a little bit about that later on this evening. We are performance-driven Every last one of us trying to find our worth, trying to find our identity in meeting needs that God just won't meet because he's not good. <clears throat> that's the motive behind the behavior. I'm afraid that I'm going to have a need that's going to go unmet because I belong to a God that's not good. Or he's not good enough to meet that need. I mean, very frankly, he's not very smart either. Because if he were smart enough, he'd know that I have this need that he doesn't meet. So now, the flesh kicks into high gear and begins to manufacture all kinds of strategies, all kinds of methods, all kinds of ways that I can meet my needs, I can get what I want, I can have what I must have, Apart from him. And until we address that, let me, let, let me say it again. Did I, I said it a moment ago? A life of holiness is a lifelong, ongoing process of identifying and then dismantling the idols that drive me. All produced by my flesh. The call of verse 24, chapter, uh, chapter 5, is to crucify that. It doesn't get crucified for me. I am called to produce, no, I am called to crucify that myself. So, what I'm being called to is to identify And then dismantle 
those things that, that I think will, will make me a happier, a wholer person needs that to this point God refuses to meet. I guess he's not going to. And I can't trust him because I don't think he's good. And so I'll take it from here. And we're really good at that. To our own destruction. That's what the call of verse 24, I think, is all about. Let's quit. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will help all of us see what we're doing to our souls. Uh, what we're allowing to go unchecked and unchallenged about our motives driving our behavior. Would you uh, give us uh, 20-20 vision as we take a look deep inside to, to find and then by your grace to dismantle all of those things that we've adopted as strategies to try and meet our own needs. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that we do not trust you. Oh, we've, uh, we've committed ourselves to you to save us from our sin. But in terms of giving us the life that, that we think we need, uh, we, um, we are often on our own. Would you... Um, would you help us discover the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us all over again? Not the height and the depth and the breadth of your law, but the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us. Open our eyes to see it, Father, for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name.